Thank you so much. It's so good to see you all. <laughs> we haven't been together like as a whole church for so, so long. And uh, I know many of you are saying hi to folks you haven't seen for a while. And um, It's been a haul. It has been a long haul. Some of you uh, know that all too well. Uh, we're making it through. I'm making progress on uh, another location in the northwest. Uh, it's over on Franz Road. Every week, I think we're going to sign a lease and something else. You know how it goes. There's just some. We're the first tenants uh, in that building after it had been sold. And there's nobody in it. And so we're learning everything that the former owner, before the private, before the current did wrong, you know, <laughs> and like killing trees. And <laughs> there's all sorts of penalties and fines. It is covering stuff. It'll take some time. We're going to get in there. We are going to get in. The architect's been through. The general contractor, we're finalizing some things this week. And um, uh, God willing, maybe middle of October, we'll have, a, we'll have a place again. In the meantime, well, I think we're here for most of the next few weeks. There might be one exception to that where it wasn't available. So we're super glad to have you. Um, we're pushing all in. We, we, are, we are pushing all in. That, in. In part, that's why we are doing videos and continuing to encourage you to, to be faithful in particular ways. That's what this card is all about. It, it, these aren't just like when we say we need you to pray, we need you to serve, we need you to lead and give. And give. Um, of course, we need to do those things to be a good, healthy church. But these things are all evidence of faith or a willingness to be more faithful. That, that's what many times our, our Christian actions are. We are saying to God, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit to serve. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, uh, gonna to sacrifice other time for you. I'm going to sacrifice. It's, this is all indications of our faith. And our intentions as a church is not to go where we could go on our own. It's to go where God would want us to go, which always requires faith. So... Continue to be faithful. Know that I am deeply grateful for the faith that you've already exhibited and continue to exhibit. Um, <laughs> it's, it feels like we're getting in over our heads is what it feels like when you're living on faith. Uh, and that's what we're doing. When we say we're going to go, we're going to get ourselves into a position to be in this building, uh, we're working like crazy. The staff is really probably overworked and will be for at least a season. Pray for our administrators, people that are responsible for details. <laughs> Think about details are just overwhelmed by the constant change. Uh, this may date me, but do you, do you remember those, uh, maybe this is a guy thing too, those metal football games where you just turn on, the, they just vibrate like that. You set up your little plastic men and then nothing like what you imagine in your head happened. I don't even know how they sold those games. Nothing happened. Uh, with the, what we're essentially asking our administrators to do right now in the midst of all the chaos is, is to line up paper clips on a board like that. It's impossible. They can't, they can't possibly succeed, and that's what they want to do more than anything else. Pray for our administrators. Um, life group leaders, you guys continue to carry huge loads. Uh, maybe, the, maybe the greatest load you, you've even carried as a life group leader is the last year and a half. Uh, this, the stresses and the strains that people are going through. Our first line of care is always the community groups that we're in. I'm so thankful for life group leaders. Um, you're serving uh, and you're giving in ways that are actually quite humbling. Uh, all while, apart from ministry, you're raising families, you're sending your kids off to school, you're caring for aging parents, 
uh, sick family and friends, you're carrying whatever burdens you carry from your, your own uh, work, uh, you're praying for and carrying the burden for non-believers in your life, uh, your neighbors. I, I am, this is, this is a good church because you are living it out in real life. I'm so thankful to be a part of it. Um, uh, Gary, did you grab a, did you, can you pray? Gary, um, I asked him to pray uh, for the space that we're in as a church right now for us as well as uh, just that whole, the things would line up um, according to God's will for that building. So Gary, would you mind just taking a minute just praying for us? Let's, let's pray. Let me read from 2 Corinthians 5. And God has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Father, first of all, I pray that you will give each one of us courage and boldness to be Christ to others. Whether they're our neighbors or our coworkers or our classmates or our playmates, I pray that folks will see Jesus. You have promised us you are the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by you. And so, God, I pray that we will be those ambassadors. Father, this has been a crazy year, year and a half, two years. We pray for the building and all of the details that need to be worked out. And as we have prayed regularly, if it's a green light, we'll proceed. If it's a yellow light, we'll go with caution. And if it's a red, we'll stop. We want your will. And I pray, Father, if it be your will, that you will open doors like you haven't before and allow this building to happen. Mm -hmm. Father, we are grateful to know you. We are grateful that you have initiated your love to each one of us. Thank you, Jesus. And I do pray again for those people that don't know you. I pray that your spirit will be stirred through this church like never before. Right. That God's spirit will move in people in this area, in this city, that people will come to know you, Jesus, and you will change the trajectory of their life Mm. from hell to heaven, Mm. from death to life. Mm. Thank you, Jesus. Mm. We trust you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen and good night. That, that's all I needed right there. Thank you, Gary. Yeah, Gary just, answered, Gary just answered the why. Why do we do what we do? Why do we take the steps of faith that we do? Why do we give? Why do we serve? Why do we pray? Why do we lift the burden and subject ourselves to the burden of caring for other people? It's because we know something and we have something of enormous value. We understand uh, the gospel. We understand the heart of God. We understand the, the reason and the purposes and the, and the love of Christ. And we understand that uh, the spirit, that's what the church understands. And it is of enormous value to not share it, to not stretch ourselves so that others might find it. Isn't just poor stewardship. It's terribly unkind. It's, the gospel is so close. 
That's what Jesus said. He literally said the good news was, I'm nearby. I have come near. It's right there. This is the thing that's been haunting me about the, uh, the people that are stranded in Afghanistan. Uh, apart from the threat on their lives, which we're talking thousands and thousands and thousands. I think there's upwards of 15,000 Americans alone in Afghanistan that are trained. And then you multiply that through all the other different types of people that uh, aren't Afghans or uh, have visas or, or allies or whatever. Unless things have changed, um, the United States military controls the airport. But you can't get to it. It's right there. It's right there. In a manner of speaking, their, their salvation, their rescue is right there, but they can't get to it. My prayer for them is that God would meet them where they are, that that rescue, that hope, that peace, that comfort, that strength, that joy is not out of reach because it is, he is near. My prayer is that those that uh, know him, experience him in ways that are life-changing for those around them who don't know him. That's the hope of something coming out of that space. I remember reading years ago about um, the, some uh, Orthodox Christians in, in Egypt, the Coptics, and they were being under, they were being more than oppressed. They were being bombed and wiped out, and word got out of there that they were requesting prayers. And they said, but, but don't pray that, that our oppression and all this tragedy would stop. He, they said, people are coming to Christ. People that are, that, are, that are trying to kill us, some of them are coming to Christ because of this. Pray that we would stand. Pray that we would live the last days of our lives, however many they are, for Christ in such a way that others would come. What kind of prayer request is that? God's always doing something. He is always near. Our prayer is that he would be near to those who know him and come to those who don't. We have something and we know something. It was why we continue to take steps of faith as a church so that others might know him too. Paul lays out the gospel over and over and over again in the book of Romans. This is what we're discovering. We're reading it backwards from 16 back to 1, and we're on chapter 5, and Paul is recapping the gospel again, again. Before I get to that, I wanted you to think for a minute about Paul. A friend said to me this week, who's under great pressure, angst, about her own brokenness and failures of recent past. And she said, who does Paul think he is saying he's the worst of all sinners? No one's buying that. That's what she said. And she's referring to something that Paul said to his apprentice, Timothy. In a personal letter to Timothy, he said, here's a thing that you can count on and accept as fully true. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. 
Did Paul really think he was the worst of all sinners? Was that just some kind of a cool thing to say? He was arguably one of the best, if not the best Pharisees, one of the, one of the top religious leaders of the Jewish people. Jesus met him and he, and he humbly flipped his, the spirit flipped his life around and he ended up being one of the most brilliant Old Testament to New Testament scholars and a passionate, successful, by all normal accounts, missionary to the unreached world. Why would he call himself the worst of all sinners? Did he really mean it? I think he meant it. It wouldn't shock me at all to discover that Paul was directly involved in the execution of Christian converts. We know that he mandated them. We know that he directed them. We know that he was involved in one because it's recorded in Scripture. But it would not shock me to know that he had administrated multiple executions and possibly at his own hand. That would not surprise me. How often do you suppose Paul caught himself condemning and judging his detractors now as a Christian? Paul wasn't Jesus. Paul was a man. He had a heart like yours and mine. You're saved. Many of you are saved. You ever have nasty thoughts about that guy or that lady or that coworker or that neighbor? Paul did, for sure. And this guy had thought up some pretty heinous things in his life. His heart, his mind was able to conjure up some pretty significant. Uh, things. Don't you imagine there would be even a time where um, those that were working against him and resisting him would be better if they were out of the way, if you know what I mean? Don't you think Paul could imagine that it would be better for the gospel if this detractor would just disappear? Can Can you imagine his daily battle of guilt and shame, not only with what he'd done in his past, but what he was oftentimes thinking, maybe, maybe dreaming about doing, which convicted him even more deeply. I, I think he understood better than most the potential wickedness of his own heart. And that was essential, one of the essential things to his teaching because it was central to Jesus' teaching that the depth and the, the and inescapable depravity of our heart is so great that no good behavior can compensate for that and bring us some sort of affirmation from God. Our heart is too far gone. And think about this. He's talking to his friend Timothy, and their context is this new church and these new believers. And so as Paul is doing what he is teaching not to do, you know, I know know this. I can trust me on this. (laughs) We teach oftentimes out of our own life experience. Do you know why Paul probably said, it's, it's wrong to compare? Because he caught himself comparing. And here he is in this new context with these new believers, mostly marginalized, mostly poor, mostly outcasts, 
And these are the very people that he scoffed at. Literally spit on. Declared that they were uh, 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 separated from God and completely unaccepted with no possibility of ever being. I mean, the kinds of things that he had done and thought of and the way he viewed the very people that were in the church right now had to make him sick. None of them were born like him with all the means and the enormous talent and the incredible brain that he used for most of his life for ill. Seeing the church filled with so many wonderful, genuine kind-hearted people that he used to scoff at must have just been heart-wrenching. It's unlikely that any of them were murderers or or, or a part of any kind of such thing. And he probably realizes now that they have been and were closer to God than he ever was. And now he's leading them. And they are accepting and respecting him. I'm not sure I could even do that. I'd be so ashamed of myself and my past. Who am I? He's been forgiven so much, not only by God, but all of the people in the church. And his heart, like yours and mine, would continue to betray him. He must have felt horrible, a lot, like the worst sinner ever. Don't you think? I think the reason that Paul understood the gospel at the depth that he did was because its implications were so deeply personal to him. He's articulate and persuasive for the very same reason anyone is about anything. What are you most persuasive about in your life? What are, what are you most able to teach and explain with passion? The stuff that's truly, deeply, personally your belief. You talk with great energy about the things that you believe in. I do the same. The things that we've experienced and we know are true, that's where we really can really, really get after it. And that's why Paul was so good at it, was he got it because it was happening in his own heart and his own life on a level most of us don't even really understand. Like you and me, Paul was deeply troubled not only by his own sort of natural fleshly stuff that we can't escape, but he was also burdened by his Jewish brothers and sisters, most of whom were not accepting the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. He carried a heavy, heavy burden. As successful as we see Paul as a missionary, he must have seen the darker side of that and how it was unsuccessful really not unlike any sales job, mostly knows. 
and an occasional yes. This is the, what he lived under. And it was physically painful. Paul was a, like a walking scar by the time he cashed it in. He was shipwrecked and sick and starving and beaten. Paul is so good about articulating the grace and the hope of God because he, he needed it so deeply. It's all that kept him going. Keep Paul in mind as we look at chapter 5. And keep you in mind. Keep yourself in mind. You suffer, don't you? Don't we all suffer from disappointments and heartache and disease and abuse and guilt and shame? And all the residual deficiencies and impulses of the sins that our flesh thinks about and generates. And if you believe Jesus and you accept that God expects a pure heart and you have the humility to see your heart clearly, hopelessness can really escalate. If you really take a good look at your heart, if you're willing to see what kind of wickedness your heart is about or could be about, it just becomes a little bit unbearable, pretty hopeless. But this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the really good news. This is what Paul says in verse 20 of chapter 5, and then we're going to back right up and start at 1. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So we're trucking along on I-71 at 89 miles an hour, just loving life. That's humanity. It's all good. 89. I love 89. Get everywhere faster. And then the speed limit sign comes along, the law, and it says 70. And now suddenly, you're guilty. I wish I never saw that sign. Every now and then, my wife will point something out, and I'm like, dang it. If you wouldn't have showed me that, I could have done that and been guilt-free. Now, when I do it, because I'm going to do it, <laughs> I'm guilty. And I know how guilty I am. 19 miles per hour guilty. But grace covers that. Covers it at 100, 112, 200. As the fees and the punishments rise, grace covers it all the more. Nothing defeats grace. Just like Paul says, sin reigned in death, also grace reigns through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's talk about hope. That's what we're going to end up talking about here. Verse 1, chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Let's pick this apart just a little bit, real briefly. Justified through faith. Justified is a legal term, and Paul used it. He took it from the legal space and said, I'm, we're using this word. You are in Christ. You are justified. You have been declared lawful. Even though you are unlawful, even though you deserve punishment, the law says 89, you should have to pay a fee 
89 miles an hour, you are now justified. You are officially not unlawful according to the authority. Paul pulls that in and uses it in a theological sense to describe God who declares or justifies us, makes us righteous, morally right, in a legal sense by God. And it brings about peace. <laughs> Either every sound guy in the back is super excited about that point, or I have 10 minutes left. <laughs> I believe they were very excited about that point. We have peace with God because he has declared we are justified. That's like, that's like this. <sighs> you ever have those moments? That is a spiritual, I had so much to be guilty of, so much to be ashamed of, so much within my heart that I cannot keep from happening, but the justification that comes through Christ by faith, oh, it's okay. God and I reconciled. By faith, not by law, through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a pretty significant question, lots of theological conversation about how it is that Jesus makes that possible. And one of my favorite all-time authors, one of the smartest guys I've ever read, I, he feels like a personal mentor to me, Dallas Willard, who passed away a couple years ago, was asked about atonement theory in particular, the one we're most aware of, sacrificial, substitutionary atonement. That's one of the ways that what Jesus has done can be explained. Dallas Willard was asked, what do you, how do you explain it? What do you think about it? And he goes, I don't know. Just, I just know Jesus did it. It doesn't mean that sacrificial atonement isn't the way, isn't what explains it, isn't how it explains it. But the real thing that matters to the practical human being is whether I can understand it theologically. Whatever Jesus did, what we know is that Jesus did it. And that's all Paul says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now in Christ, Paul says to the church in Ephesus, Jesus, you were once, who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Through him, we have both, we have access to the Father. We know Jesus died and he was raised again. He spilled his blood, he was raised into new life. And because of that, however that can be explained, however it's explained, Jesus did it and now we have peace with the Father. We are justified and all it requires of us is faith. Verse two, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace which we now stand. This is what Paul's been preaching and is preaching all the way through Romans, being established in Christ. Because of what Jesus did, by faith, we have peace with God and that is where we stand. It's not something we have to grow in. It's something we have to actually expand upon. You are established in Christ fully, completely, period. The moment you put faith in the Son, you have peace with God. Done. Boom. You stand in it. You are established. I want to tell you three things as we finish up here. 
A little bit about the law. I want you to think about a little bit about the spirit and a little bit about hope. The law, we've mentioned this time and time again. Paul says, we know that the law is good if it is used properly. Jesus said, your righteousness should rise above that of the Pharisees, (laughs) which were perfect at the law. Here's what we know about the law. Here's how the law is used properly. It reveals our misbehavior. That's what the law is for now. The law used to be the standard we had to reach to appease God, to be affirmed by him. We already know that can't happen. But the law is still purposeful because it shows us where we are misbehaving. And even deeper than that, Jesus, when he says you have to, righteousness has to be greater than that of the Pharisee, there's no way to be better than the Pharisee in our behavior. What did Jesus always say about the Pharisee? The problem was the heart. So the law reflects our behavior, but our behavior reflects our heart. And so in a manner of speaking, the purpose of the law now is to show that not not only am I going 89 miles an hour, I want to. I want to break the law. I want to go fast. Something wrong with that impulse Because when you think about God's law, God's law is the perfect way to live. Why in the world would you not live according to God's way? Why? Because your heart doesn't want to. And Jesus, that's a deeper problem. God's aim is our heart, and our behavior then becomes the fruit of that heart. The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The law says, Look at your mouth and then look at your heart. That's what the law is about. You also died to the law. We read this in Romans chapter seven. You also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another who was raised from the dead. We have a new king. In order that we might bear fruit for God, what Jesus does causes fruit to grow from this heart. We've been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Our life is now driven by the spirit, not by the law. The spirit fills and creates a new heart out of which fruit, good obedience, the way flows. The spirit is two things, a generator and a regenerator. The spirit is our new counselor. It's our new power to follow Jesus, who is our new owner. When you become a Christian, you don't become, an, you don't become a, um, a free agent. You, you, we belong to the old nature. The old nature, the sin nature, controlled us. Jesus frees us from that. But our only choice is to remain enslaved to that or become, if you will, enslaved to Jesus. Those are the choices. We now have a new allegiance, and he breathes the Spirit into us to live the way we're supposed to live. Listen to what Jesus said, John chapter 20. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, because Jesus had been been crucified, he was raised. The disciples weren't totally clear on what was going on yet. They weren't even sure about any of this stuff. But now they know the Jewish leaders are after them. So they go into a room, they lock the doors, and then Jesus shows up in the room. Pretty cool. You think, this must be sort of a figment of my imagination. He goes, no, no, touch me. You can see I'm I'm here. I'm physically right here. 
But the doors were locked, and suddenly he's in there. And listen to what he says. Peace be with you. And he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then, I'm not going to go into it now, he gives them some instructions to go and do something that was formerly only something God could do. Jesus, the one who brings peace with God, says exactly what he should say when he walks in the room after he's been raised. Peace. Receive it. I give you peace with God. And he gives the Spirit. And he says, now go and be godly. The nature of the Spirit within us has an, inter- an external impact, actually. The Spirit within us is actually the very entity that now empowers us to do what it is we are called to do. But the key is, the Spirit is also regenerating our heart. Just like the law shows you our behavior and then shows you the heart, the Spirit regenerates the heart, which results in godly behavior. Isn't this interesting? Paul says in verse 3 and 4, We also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Not only do we stand in grace, we stand firm in the grace, we stand firm in Christ by faith, peace with God, but we also glory, hold our heads up, see the purpose of suffering, Because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character and character produces hope. There is meaning and maturity that comes through the suffering of life. We do suffer deeply from disappointment and heartache and disease and abuse and guilt and shame and all the residual deficiencies and impulses of sin within us. But what we see Paul saying is, you're justified in the midst of it all. Jesus has died for it. You are at peace. And the sufferings are bringing about maturity in you. I'm growing you up. I'm changing your heart through those things. This is the toughest thing about being a Christian As we come to Jesus, we come to God in hopes that he would eliminate trouble for our life or elevate us above it. And he says, no, I want to grow you up. I want to change your heart through it. Trust me to do that. Through the trials and the struggles of life, we see, you see, the Spirit of God strengthening you to get through it. Every time the Spirit gets you through it, you grow in spiritual character. As we persevere by the Spirit in life, our character, our spiritual character grows. Each chapter of life is sustained by what we are certain of, the Spirit of God working within me. Each chapter of life stands really as a a symbol of God's faithfulness that he will get us through. 
even if it's your final chapter. Within a few minutes, one of our former elders, Tim Clark, uh, getting the diagnosis that it, he w- it was going to end. They, they couldn't fix what was wrong. The brain's cancer. He looked at me and said, what's going on, Mike? I said, well, Tim, <laughs> you're in your last chapter. We just don't know how long it is. He goes, okay. He says, Let's do it. Let's do it. The night before, people that gathered around him to pray, Tim asked the question, is God reliable? It was a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. God is reliable through it all. Tim called it privileged space, his final chapter. He knew that he could do things for Christ and be a witness for Christ in a way that he never could have before in his life. And he was. Because he knew. He knew God was up to something. He knew the spirit lived within him. He knew that in those moments, for eternity's sake, maybe not for earthly sake, he was still being matured and his hope was still growing. This is the most amazing thing about this passage. Hope follows character which follows perseverance. Most of us just say, give me some hope, please. Would like some hope right now. Bring it. God, I need hope. I need hope. God's like, it doesn't just, don't just give hope. Hope is developed. You develop hope by persevering. And your character allows you to have hope. (laughs) The sound guys have completely given up. They have no, they're not excited about anything anymore. They're just waiting. Character, character, spiritual character is spiritual maturity. It's spiritual renewal. It's new eyes that see that God is to something. It's spiritual thinking that sees what's true in this world and what's true about eternity. And from seeing and thinking and knowing because of the Spirit's work within us, what is actually going on, we have hope. We can see it in our own lives. God is alive. He brought me through that. I see things like I've never seen them before. God is real. The future is real. And I see it. Why? Because of how the Spirit sustains me through suffering. Paul finishes with, and I will too, hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not put us to shame. Todd, I asked Todd, what does that mean, Todd? This is one of our elders. He said, it means that we don't hope in vain. We don't hope in vain. We know for sure who God is and what is up and what eternity is like and how faith and Jesus ties in. We we are going to be rewarded. So we hold our heads up. In the midst of a lot of confusion at times and where are you, God, we hold our head up because we know how this finishes. This is one of the last things Paul said. Um, at least one of the things we have recorded to that letter in Timothy, he says, for these reasons, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now, 
to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul turned a corner and continued to turn a corner in his life, spinning him away from shame and guilt and disappointment to an increasing realization of the grace of God and the presence of God and the power of the Spirit within him. That's what we're about, church. A continual development of our maturity through the troubles of life, empowered by the Spirit so that our character grows and we actually have hope. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for your son. Our reconciliation with you in him that we stand upon. And thank you, God, for giving the spirit, breathing the spirit within us who enables us through the suffering into character and ultimately into a hope that will not be disappointed. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you're watching from home, thank you for being here. If you're in the room, Pastor Brian has a couple more things to say to you, and then we're out of here. Thank you all.